Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. <laughs> oh my gosh. <clears throat> hey, how's it going? Everybody okay? put this here you guys see what this is this is like a really really small child complete with eyes and a nose and red lipstick actually thanks Jess appreciate that it doesn't even sit up though okay um we're going to talk about Jesus, which is going to be good. So if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 2, if you don't, there's Bibles back here. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> oh, before we jump in, um, just a couple of things. If you're new, welcome. Glad that you're here. Uh, there are some cards on the table. They should be black. Some of them are orange, I think. If you want to fill one of those out, that would be awesome. Uh, let us know that you were here. And uh, it's kind of how we keep in touch with people. Uh, and email, text, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, and if you came ready uh, or open and willing to participate in what God's doing uh, at Awaken and want to do that financially, you can do that in those little silver buckets there. Um, we would appreciate that as well. So we're in week four of a series called the Advent Conspiracy, and this is the last week of Advent, in case you didn't know. If you um, haven't been paying attention to the calendar or didn't grow up uh, paying attention to the church calendar. Advent's the season before Christmas. Um, does anyone know what comes after Christmas, just out of curiosity? Anyone? Church calendar people? Thank you. That would be Epiphany. Yes, Epiphany. New Year, somebody said. <laughs> yes, that does come after Christmas. Uh, uh, epiphany, uh, obviously, Jesus being born into the world, a great light as the scriptures talk about him, so Epiphany is that season. But this is Advent, and it's the last uh, last Sunday of Advent. And so, we have talked about uh, spending less, and uh, I challenged you and invited you a couple weeks ago to buy one less gift and um, make something, be creative, give yourself, give presents, like P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, not T-N or N-T-S, you know what I mean? Um, and, and then on Christmas Eve, we're going to be receiving an offering uh, that will go towards hunger in our community. So take that money that you would have spent towards a uh, gift and, and give it to something else. Uh, I'll have you know I'm almost done with my little gift. Uh, I was out in the garage again this week working away like a little elf, a little Christmas elf out there doing my thing. So that'll be fun uh, to give. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about incarnation and uh, giving more. That the, the greatest gift that we have to give, that you have to give, that the church has to give is not the sum of our resources, but the fact that God has come and he is in us and works through us as the church. And so I uh, invited you to give out of that place. And then last week we talked about loving all. This week I want to talk about worship. And uh, I'll start just by sharing a, a story. I used to work at a camp. I was a camp counselor. Uh, I used to be a youth pastor back in the day. And so, you know, Pretty much the road to being a youth pastor is always through the camp counselor route. Uh, I did a few crazy things in my day, including um, shaving my legs. Yes, I did shave my legs uh, for, for, I think it was a missionary offering or something like that. So uh, I mud wrestled with pigs in a pig pen. Has anyone ever done that before? No. Okay. 
Don't if you get a chance. It's disgusting, really gross. Uh, One of the grossest things I think I've ever done. So I did lots of crazy things as a camp counselor. But uh, I wanted to share this story about a couple of guys. We'll call them Adam, Brad, and Charlie, A, B, and C, so you can keep track of the people here. And uh, as the story goes, Adam and Brad and Charlie were were camp camp counselors, and uh, they were counselors for a summer. And then the next summer, uh, two of them came back, Adam and Brad, and they were talking and, you know, remembering last year and talking about school and how the year went and everything, and summer's coming, and kids are coming and all this. And and Charlie came up, and and Brad said, oh, is Charlie coming back? And Adam said, actually, Charlie decided not to come back this year. And Brad, just kind of like stricken with seriousness, um, and before I say that, now, Brad, you have to know, is, is a bit of a hyper-Calvinist. So, I mean, I have friends that are Calvinists. I respect them. I love them. You know, they're in the kingdom, barely, but uh, in the kingdom. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm totally joking. Totally joking. Um, actually, some, one, of the, one of the smartest people I know and, and one of the most uh, passionate followers of Jesus uh, sees it this way, and that's okay. Uh, I don't particularly, but that's fine. So uh, this guy's a hyper, like fundamentalist to the nth degree, right? And he says, Adam says, well, Charlie's not coming back this year. And Brad says, well, I hope, I hope he was right. Otherwise, he's going to miss God. Now, friends, I have missed a lot of things in my life. I've missed tea times for golf. I have missed appointments with many of you. I've left some of you sitting at coffee shops wondering, where is he? Uh, I have missed uh, hockey practices. I've missed bands that have come to town. I've missed some pretty important things. But to miss God seems like a pretty big deal. Um, Now, while I don't hold to or ascribe to this particular view of God's sovereignty and free will, that that God's will is like this uh, dot, this bullseye, and if we miss it, if we don't get it, then we miss out, right? Uh, this is kind of what Brad was saying. Like, if we don't get it, if Charlie was wrong and he didn't discern God's will properly, then, quite frankly, he's going to miss God this summer because he'll be elsewhere and God will be here. Lots of theological problems with that. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is, is it possible to miss God? Is it possible to miss out on God? Is it possible to miss him in the midst of something, in the midst of things? Um, And so this weekend, as we kind of close this series, I want to talk about worship, because ultimately, as I see it, Advent and Christmas is about worship. It's about... Uh, it's about the, a choice that we make in our hearts and minds that's then played out and carried out in our lives, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the way we... So what you ascribe ultimate worth to dictates how things will shake out in your life and where you will spend your money, where you'll spend your time, where you'll invest yourself. And ultimately, I think that that's about worship. It's about what you ascribe worth to. And the irony about this, the scriptures about this story is that it would appear, if you read the story pretty carefully, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospel writers, when Jesus shows up, it almost appears as if there are a bunch of people who miss what was right in front of their faces. I mean, Jesus, this baby, born in a manger in Bethlehem, right there, like first-person account people, and yet somehow, if you read the story, it would appear that some of these folks miss. They miss what's right underneath their noses, right in front of their faces. And then the other irony that I find when I read this is that the people who saw it, I mean really saw it, the people who really heard it, are a completely unlikely cast of characters. Right? Shepherds, 
a teenage girl who's unwed, uh, pregnant, um, Joseph, angels. They probably got a little advanced warning, but the people that see it, the people that hear it, the people that experience it were pretty unlikely. And and I, I guess I'd ask the question, for us, you know, as you think about Christmas, as you think about all the things that you've seen in the last couple of weeks, all of the commercials that you've seen and listened to and all the things on the radio and the, the lines. Did anyone go shopping yesterday? Anybody go out yesterday? A couple of you. Young. Well, no. Would you do it again next year? Yes, no, no. I didn't go. I told Laura, I'm like, we're staying in all day yesterday. Um, but could you imagine, can you imagine the possibility of missing Christmas in our culture? You'd have to be a total idiot to miss Christmas in our culture. I mean, you'd have to have your head buried in the sand. You'd have to be living out in the woods. You'd have to have, to miss Christmas in our culture, you'd have to be uh, elsewhere, if you know what I mean. But is it possible to miss what God is up to in the midst of Christmas? Is it possible to to miss that? My hope and my prayer this morning as we enter in this Uh, this particular story is that we, as people, will enter into Christmas with our whole heart and that we will allow it to shape us, that we'll allow it to change us, we'll allow it to speak to us, uh, to say something to us, and in the end, um, that we will receive what God has given to us in Christmas. So Luke chapter 2, if you will, we'll start in verse 21. says this, On the eighth day when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. And when the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. By the way, uh, this is after Jesus has been born, obviously. Mary and Joseph are doing their thing, trying to learn how to parent this little little guy. And uh, it was customary for Jews to take their babies to the temple on the eighth day, as Luke says right here. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And offer a sacrifice in keeping with what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or, or two young pigeons. And so they take him to the temple, and this is where we run into two people that I want to focus on this morning. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was, a, who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do what... Uh, For him, what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him, and then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. To be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the hearts and many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Lots going on there from Isaiah. We'll get into it another time. There was a prophetess named Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped day and night. Fasting and praying, coming up to them at every moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about, spoke about the child who, to all who were looking for the redemption of Israel. And when Joseph and Mary had done everything the law had required of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town uh, of Nazareth. Pray with me, if you will. God, I want to ask this morning as we uh, look at this story and as we come to this text, um, lots of things brought in these doors this morning. 
uh, including in my heart. God, I ask that uh, you would quiet our hearts, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, um, and that you would speak a message of hope and of grace and of love to us uh, wherever we are. I pray in your name, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Now, like I said, a lot of people miss, seem to miss what's going on when Jesus shows up. But there's two characters, Simeon and Anna, who I want to focus on this morning, who seem to get it. And I don't know about you guys, but there's this, uh, there's this um, what's it, what would I say? Um, ha- not a habit. It's a discipline called Midrash in Judaism. And Midrash is where um, people who are scholars, studied people, would go through the text and they'd read something. And they would basically fill in the blanks. They would fill in the spaces between the lines in the story. And actually, we just studied Esther. There's two major uh, works, Midrash works, done about Esther. And if you ever get a chance to read any of them, they're fascinating, right? Because you read the story and you recognize some of the text. And then they just go on these massive tangents about, you know, the color of King Xerxes' hair or what they thought would be on the table. So it's kind of like a, a, a... uh, embellished retelling of the story, right? If I were going to retell this story, Simeon and Anna, for me, in my mind's eye, are like the classic church lady, right? You guys, have you ever been to a really, really old church, and there's kind of the classic church lady that wanders the halls, and she serves really bad coffee, and um, everybody knows who she is, and then Simeon, for me, would be this guy, like the old guy who comes to Thursday morning prayer at at Perkins, like every single week. Do you guys know who I'm talking about? You know these people in your mind? So if I were going to do a midrash, I'd fill in these blanks, these stories, because these guys are just classic for me. But like many of the saints among us, like many of those who have walked years and years and years and years and years who have been faithful to Jesus... Uh, I think that we have a lot to learn from Simeon and Anna. And I want to just highlight a couple of things. Because for me, as I read this story, these are two people, right? We don't hear about them really ever again. Um, There's not much written about them. And yet right here in this text, what's happening is absolutely fascinating and really, really profound. They see it. They get it. And what is it about them? What is it about what they're doing and what they say and how they posture themselves that they're able to see this Jesus and really what's happening in the midst of this Christmas story. So I want to highlight a couple of things. First one is this. I would say that Simeon and Anna are in tune with the suffering of God's people. They're in tune with what it means to be God's people and then what comes along with that, which is suffering. For us in our culture, uh, especially in the West, we have an aversion to pain. Uh, If you've ever traveled before, you've ever read anything, especially about Eastern cultures, which of course is where the Bible comes from, um, there is a very different view of pain. And it's not something that we avert or do everything and we, we spend all kinds of money and at all costs we, we try not to go into or, or suffer from. But rather, it's something that you go through. It's something that you pass through. It's an experience that you, if you don't pass through, you actually miss out on something that helps you grow and become a better or a different person or a stronger person. So for us, we avert pain, but it would appear, if you read the scriptures, in this guy Jesus, who of course we know the rest of the story, uh, if you look at God's people throughout the story of the scriptures, suffering is very near to what it means to be God's people. It's always right around the corner. And even Paul in the New Testament talks about to be part of God's people, to bear the name of Jesus and to suffer is an honor, and I consider it a joy and a privilege. What is it about suffering? Luke is intent on telling us that Simeon and Anna are in tune with suffering and what it means to be Israel. Because here's the thing. In the scriptures, oftentimes, there will be a word 
or a phrase that the author uses that taps into something that goes way, way deeper than what's on the surface. So the authors of Scripture often will say a word or they'll, they'll use a phrase, and what they're doing is calling back or tapping into this long backstory that the audience who would have first heard it would have been like, oh, that's what he's talking about, or oh, I recognize that, or oh, he must mean this. The technical term for it is metalepsis. It's using a word or phrase and then tapping into a backstory that the audience would have heard or would have already known. What's happening here in Luke, and we miss this all the time because of 2,000 years of history and being that far removed from this culture. But that's exactly what Luke does in verse 25 and in verse 38. Look at your scriptures, if you will. Luke 20, uh, verse 25, he says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for what? What does your text say? The what? The consolation of Israel. Ding, ding, ding to the original listener. Now, skip over to verse 38, and what does it say there? Anna, coming up to them at the very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were waiting for the what? What does your text say? The redemption of Israel. So in two little phrases, in two little words, Luke says, he just blows the whole thing up. What's he getting at? What's he tapping into? In the story of God's people, as told in the Old Testament, suffering and waiting and longing and anticipation is always very near to the people. I mean, think about this, guys. Who are these people? Father Abraham had many sons, Genesis chapter 12. They're God's people, right? Stars on the seashore, sand on the seashore, stars in the sky. This is the nation that God will use. And then... They're brought into slavery for years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So these people know what exile is like. Then they're brought out of the land and into the promised land, or out of Egypt, out of, out of exile, and into the land. And then, of course, we know from all of the prophets and the later books of the Old Testament that they're brought back into exile, the Babylonians and the Assyrians and, and others. So this is a group of people who know exile and they know suffering. Listen to a couple of passages from Isaiah. And a lot of the, the, the Old Testament writers get to this, but I think Isaiah really nails it. 52 verse 9 says, Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. 49.3 says, Shout for joy, O heavens, rejoice, O earth. Or maybe it's 13. What do you guys have there? 13. Um, Rejoice, O earth, burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and has compassion on his afflicted ones. Psalm, or Isaiah 40, one of the more famous ones. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Chapters 40 through 55 of Isaiah. The whole thing is looked at as to, and talked about as the suffering servant of Isaiah. And going back in the story... Uh, into the Exodus, we see a God who hears the cry of, his, of the Israelites, a God who hears the cry of suffering and enters into suffering. Paul, later in the New Testament, in, uh, um, talks about, in our weakness, God is strong. In our suffering, if we bear the name of Jesus, it's a joy, it's a privilege. Our tendency is to move away from suffering, is to sidestep pain, to avert it at all costs. And yet, in, right in the middle of the story of, the, of God's people is suffering over and over and over and over again. Does anyone find that ironic? Does anyone find that interesting? And the people who saw it understood it. They were waiting for the consolation of Israel. They were waiting for the redemption of Israel. They were in tune with that. Bono from U2, uh, many of you ha have seen and, and maybe even seen play and 
lots of famous quotes, but he was invited to the National Prayer Breakfast at one point in his career, and he says this. This is a quote from it. He says, I mean, God may be well with us in our mansions on the hill. I hope so. He may be with us in all manner of controversial stuff. Maybe, maybe not. But one thing we can all agree on, all faiths, all ideologies, is that God is with the vulnerable and the poor. God is in the slums, in the cardboard boxes where the poor play house. God is in the silence of a mother who has given, infected her child with a virus that will end both of their lives. God is in the cries heard from under the rubble of war. God is in the debris of wasted opportunity and lives. And God is with us if we are with them. Sometimes scripture is really hard to interpret. Sometimes it's really tricky and it's nuanced. But I think that I could, I could say with confidence, I wouldn't have to go out on a limb here, to say that God, throughout the story of scriptures, is with those who suffer, with the vulnerable, with the poor. I wonder this Christmas, if we're to really enter this story, if it doesn't mean a move towards our suffering, towards our desert experiences, towards our exiles, so to speak. Or maybe a move towards those around us in our communities who suffer, who are vulnerable, who are poor. This isn't a formula. It's not ironclad. I'm not saying if you do this, then this will happen. But I think I can say that with, with pretty, pretty, pretty high level of confidence that to be God's people is to understand. I mean, Paul practically promises it in the New Testament. If you follow the way of Jesus, if you go down this road, if you say yes to this Jesus, what is coming your way is suffering in some way, in some shape, in some form. And I want to just encourage you this Christmas. It may be physical, it may be financial, it may be psychological, it may be personal. I don't know. I know what it is for me. And it's really, really near the surface. And my temptation, my, my, my inclination, my first response is to try to go the other way. But I'm feeling not only because I knew I had to teach this this morning, but I have this just sinking feeling in my heart that this way is not life. This way is not knowing God deeper. It's this way. I think Simeon and Anna saw that, they noticed it, and they experienced the story. They entered the story of Christmas and Jesus. They, I think not only that, not only did they do that, but they understood the scope of what God was doing. And friends, not a lot of people got this. Not a lot of people in this story, and, and I would argue maybe even in our story, not a lot of people got this, how big what God was up to in Christmas and what was actually happening in their midst. Look at, again, back to Isaiah. Chapter 52 says, The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all nations, and all the ends of the earth will see that salvation, the salvation of our God. Isaiah 45 says, The glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. 
49.6, is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept? And I will also make you a light for the Gentiles so that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Listen to my people, hear me, my nation. The law will go out for me and justice will be like a light to the nations, which is a metaphor for the entire world. Romans 8, Paul says that the world is groaning. The whole entire world, the cosmos is groaning for redemption. What God does at Christmas, when Jesus shows up, is not just for the Jewish people, but it's for the entire world. It's for everything. Simeon and Anna, in the midst of the, the suffering of Israel, understood this, and they understood that God wasn't concerned just with Israel's plight, just with Israel's suffering, but he's concerned with the entire world. For others around them, for the most part, they missed out on what was right under their nose. How? How? I mean, they have the scriptures. They had the script. What I just read, they had. How is it that, that, they, that they missed? Is it possible that our view of God and our understanding of what God is up to and what God is doing is smaller than it ought? I think for Israel, as we read this story, it was about nationalism. It was about Israel as a people, and it was about restoring Israel. It was about... God bringing Israel back from exile and making them the nation he called them to be and smiting the pagans and the Romans and everybody else. For us, I think there may be a bit of that in it. I don't want to go down the political road this morning. But I think I I, I would say this. I want to challenge you this Christmas. I want to challenge you and invite you into thinking about God in a way that doesn't that doesn't relegate him to where you think he might be. I mean, often we say, oh yeah, God, you know, God is there. He's doing things. But certainly he's not over here. And certainly not with those people who think this or believe that. And I want to invite you into a perspective that the scriptures seem to be telling us pretty clearly that what God does in Jesus is for all. We talked a little bit about this last week. It's for all, anyone, everyone, all of creation. Not just the people that we agree with, not just the people who have the same belief systems as we do, not just the people... Now, I'm not saying that there isn't things that are right and there aren't things that are wrong. That's not, the, that's not what I'm saying. But I think sometimes we miss out on where God is and what he's up to because we don't have eyes to see it. And God is in, although what God is doing in Christmas is massive and huge and for the entire world, God is in the small things and in the quiet and in the silence. So I want to just, I, I hope that if anything, that you are invited to sort of like put your, <laughs> I just had a, a vision of Dukes of Hazard. You got your ears on, you know, Roscoe P. Coltrane. Sorry. I love that show. But I want to invite you to to just have your radar up, to have your eyes open. A couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, uh, I was... um, I don't like to clean the bathroom. I don't know if any of you married folks have kind of like... You know, these just unwritten understandings, these sort of unwritten rules, like, 
I do this not because of gender or sex or anything in both accounts of the word. Um, Not just because of, you know, if I do this, then this. That's not why I do that. But I do this and, you know, I just don't like cleaning the bathroom. And so I'll do the dishes. I will clean the kitchen. I will do laundry. I will do all kinds of things. But I just don't like cleaning the bathroom. I mean, nobody really uses it that much, you know. And it's like if it's got a little dust on the mirror or whatever, I don't care. So I'm in the kitchen. I'm doing the dishes one night. And um, chaos has just ensued at the dinner table, the dining table. Some of you have been to my house. You've sat in on this. And it's a zoo. It's a circus. People are standing on chairs and throwing things sometimes. And we just try to rein it in, you know, like keep it in the ring here. So chaos has now moved down into the basement, which is lovely. And uh, Mama has followed them, and I'm left in the kitchen by myself. And I put on Pandora, my new best friend, to like some, you know, classical something or other. So I've got classical Pandora playing, just me. I'm looking out the window, and I start to do the dishes. And I just say, Jesus, I know you're here, and I want to be with you. And I just tuned my heart just for a moment. And I imagined Jesus like sitting up on my countertop with a cup of coffee, just enjoying being with me. And he just said, I love you. And I'm enough. And it was the most insignificant moment. Right? I mean, I'm doing the dishes. And there he was. (laughs) And it just fed me. It just like filled me up. And I've missed that moment so many times. So many times. And I just kicked myself looking back. Because it's not that he's not there. It's not that in those moments God's absent but do I have eyes to see it? To stop long enough to say, I know that you're here and I want to be with you. I'll close by saying this. Anna and Simeon, I think, are active participants in what God is doing. Verse 38 says that Anna told all who were looking So here's an old lady who's been a widow for a long, long time. She does nothing but hang out at the temple. She sees Jesus, and then she begins to tell everybody who is looking, everybody who's waiting, everyone who has eyes to see it and ears to hear it, everybody who's anticipating what God might do for Israel. She says, listen, it's here. This is it. This is the moment. And she becomes an active participant. Now, what Anna does, it's terribly insignificant. Like, God does what God will do regardless, irrespective of what Anna will do. But there is a moment, there is a decision, there's a point at which she enters into the story and becomes an active role. And I want to invite you this Christmas to think about 
How and in what ways do I enter into, do I say yes to, and play an active, participating role in what God is doing in the world? Now, Awaken is a community that at its center is the idea of activity that we partner with. We, we accept a, an invitation of God to partner with him and do things in the world. And we want to be known for what we do. You heard me correctly. We want to be known for what we do, not what we believe. Because what we do is absolutely rooted and always will be traced back to what we believe. We can say we believe all kinds of things and then do other things, but what we believe is actually played out in what we do. Does that make sense? So I want this community, and we want to be known for what we do, because if we do something, then that's connected to what we believe. And if we're doing the things of God and participating in the life of God, then those are connected to the things that we believe about God. Now, having said that, I want to push that back for just a second as we close. Because it's very, very easy for us to slip into and slide into a position where we think that what we do is the end. That what we do ultimately matters. And when I say ultimately, I'm talking about like salvifically, like how God views us and how we enter relationship with him. And it's very easy to move into a spot where we say, if we just do these things and we participate in these things, then that's what God is looking for. And we need to be very, very, very cautious here. Because participating begins, and it has to begin, by receiving what God has done for you. It has to start there by receiving what God has done for you. Then he wants to do something in you and then through you. But it's got to start here. And what is it about receiving? As a pastor, uh, you know, uh, I'm in a place where uh, sometimes people give us gifts. Uh, sometimes it's money, sometimes it's a dinner, sometimes it's a babysitting, sometimes it's uh, a gift card to Chili's. And it is so hard to receive. To just say thank you, because what do we want to do? Thank you, and I will, right? Thanks, and because at this point, when someone gives you something, you, you feel indebted to them. You feel like you owe them something. I feel like, we feel like, when someone gives something to us, it's like they've got something over us, and if we, ha- we have to settle the score, we have to even the accounts, we have to, we have to, we have to, we... It's hard to receive, isn't it? Friends, The good news of the gospel, and if you don't hear anything this morning, hear this. The good news of the gospel, the story of Christmas, what we're celebrating and what we're anticipating and looking forward to in Advent is a gift. It's grace. And it's to be received. There is nothing that you can do to earn it. There is nothing that you can do to be worthy of it. There is nothing that you can do to repay it. Nothing, 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 nothing. But receive it. 
to hold out your hands and receive what God has done. You, listen to me. You cannot earn it. You will never be worthy of it. In your brokenness, in your mess, in your loneliness, in your desperation, in your you have totally it up. God comes to you and he says, this is grace. This is gift. And the only way we experience it is by receiving. That's it. That is good news. That is gospel. And that is what Christmas means. That God has come and he says this is grace. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You will never be worthy of it. You can't, do, you can't work hard enough to get it. But it's for you. Pray with me if you would. God, as we try our hardest each year around this time to really enter into the story. There's so many distractions. There are so many ways, so many things that get in the way of really seeing who you are and hearing what you have to say. God, I pray for me, for my friends, that you would, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the noise, that you would not be silent. God, for many of us, we've said yes to you, Jesus. And yet we still, in some way, feel like we're indebted, that we have to work, that we have to do something to earn your love. God, I pray that we would know that you love us in the middle of our mess. That at our worst, you speak loudest and say, you are mine, I love you. When we have messed up relationships and careers and friendships, that you say, you are mine, I love you. No less, no more than I did before. God, for those who are maybe on the fringes just trying to figure out who you are, God, I pray that gospel seeds, that gospel would leave this place, that people would understand and know that you are a God who offers yourself to us in grace and gift. And that we would receive it today Speak to us, God, this Christmas. And may we have ears to hear you, eyes to see you. 
Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.